So we're going through Authentic Living Today, series through the letters of Peter. And today, this is our virtual church service with some in the parking lot and several in Zoom. The title of the message today is Christian Work Ethic, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 and following. Let's read the first part of the text. Starting with verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, it's a fascinating part of our text so far because it implies some people really get way off on this and they think that God's implying we should stay in abusive relationships. That's not what he's saying at all. But when you're in one, and if you look at the NIV, you'll see that this actually says slaves, not servants. When you're in a relationship, when you have someone who is in charge of you, who is unkind to you, cruel to you, it's not okay that you're in that relationship, but while you're in it, and I would recommend if you're in such a relationship, you need to fix that, get out of it, whatever you can do, but while you're in it, it is best to behave and endure. You got many stories through history you can look at. Tons of stories where Christians endured unjust treatment. They suffered unjustly and were commended for it later, especially by God. Many have success stories because they set such a good example by enduring the unjust treatment. And we're about to jump into a part of our text. It's one verse. Before we jump into it, I want to give you a little bit of a heads up as to what we're about to get into because you might not expect it. A book was written a long time ago. If you were here in the room, I'd be flashing it up on the wall for you, a picture of it. In fact, it was written between 1418 and 1427 by Thomas Kempis. It was written in Latin, Imitatio Christi, which means imitating Christ. The original title was The Following of Christ. It was printed 745 times at its peak in the 17th or in the 16th century. It was published only it was the most published book second only to the Bible. And today it's still considered probably the most commonly read devotional publication. It's been translated into just about every known language. Later, John Wesley would build his foundation on this theme, imitating Christ. In 1881, Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached a sermon with the theme, What Would Jesus Do Throughout the Whole Message? Following the same kind of thought from this original book. 
Also, in 1881, that same year, A.B. Simpson wrote a hymn with the words, What Would Jesus Do in the title? But it wasn't until in the 1890s that a man by the name of Charles Sheldon, a preacher in Topeka, Kansas, at Central Congregational Church, was growing increasingly frustrated with the very mediocre behavior of the Christians in his congregation in the sense that they weren't attending very well the Sunday night services. So he decided to change his style up a little bit and the messages. And every message at the end of it would have the, mess, would have the statement, what would Jesus do? And his church grew incredibly. Many more people began attending the Sunday night service that spilled over into Sunday morning services. And he decided to go ahead and publish a book. The name of that book was called In His Steps. If you were in this room, I would show, I'd throw it up on the wall, a copy of one of the original publications of In His Steps by Charles Sheldon. Due to an error made in the copyright, it was done incorrectly, and because of that, many publishers picked up the book without giving any royalties, any pay whatsoever to Charles Sheldon, and the book became even more popular. It became one of the most popular books of all time. But if you were to see the image of the original book that was published in 1897, it says, what, it says, in his steps, what would Jesus do? And over a hundred years later, there was a youth leader in Holland, Michigan. Her name was Janie Tinklenberg. She read the book, In His Steps, and was very moved by it. And by the way, there's been a couple of movies with that title, Uh, Both of them have horrible acting, but great stories. Let me tell you about the book. In the book, there is a man who is very poor, is struggling to take care of his family, and he begins going through a community and seeking help. He even knocks on the preacher's door, but the preacher just blows him off. He shows up at church that Sunday, and he takes his hat off, and he holds it in his hands and walks to the front of the church and basically takes over the service as he tries to explain to people how he's been judged and not helped and questions whether or not they actually know how to live out their Christianity. And as he did this, he passed out. They tried to care for him, but it was a couple of days later that he passed away. And this moved the church, moved the preacher in the story to ask the question of the church, What would Jesus do? And he challenged the congregation to live a whole year, and everything you do, ask the question before you do it, what would Jesus do? But the title of the book was In His Steps, What Would Jesus Do? Here's some questions that we could ask. So Let's say a stranger needs help. Ask, what would Jesus do? A co-worker is struggling. What would Jesus do? A church member has been sick, absent, or distant. What would Jesus do? A classmate is failing. Maybe not just the coursework. What would Jesus do? A parent 
is overwhelmed, and if you're the child, what would Jesus do? A neighbor's yard has been neglected. What would Jesus do? A friend's only car broke down. What would Jesus do? A spouse, your spouse, your wife, your husband, is upset or very discouraged. Maybe it's because of you. What would Jesus do? Someone that you know that you're close to has a different political view. What would Jesus do? Let's get a little bit more personal. That person who keeps coming to our church is always alone and not engaging anyone. They come in by themselves, sit by themselves, and leave by themselves with not much, even small talk. What would Jesus do? I'd like, I like to stay up on Saturday nights, and often this makes it hard for me to get up and attend church on Sunday mornings. I miss a lot because of it, and I actually missed a few Sundays when there were people who could have used interaction with me. I could have encouraged them. What would Jesus do? A new family comes to church, to our church. Maybe it's next Sunday when we are back to meeting together in person. I don't know them very well. Nobody really does. We don't even know if they're into this mask-wearing thing, which I can't stand. And just to remind you, I do not judge you if you don't wear a mask. But we don't know what this family thinks. They all come in wearing masks. They come in. They know that we're supposed to be compliant with social distancing. They can see we're doing that with our chairs spaced apart. We're trying to do social distancing. But they come in and they see some of us who are not wearing masks because we don't like to wear masks like me. And then they are disappointed at our outward expression of disapproval. And they take it as threatening their health and safety. And they also are disappointed because they understand that we're not supposed to be gathering together as a church without social distancing and masking. And it bothers me and it disappoints me that, that I have to wear this mask. But what about that family? We don't know what they think. We might lose them over our attempt to take a stand. What would Jesus do? Back to our text. In the context of being mistreated by our bosses or people over us, let's just go ahead and read that whole beginning again so that we remember the context. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Okay, now get ready for it. Here's that verse. 1 Peter 2.21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So this concept of what would Jesus do comes from this verse. The idea of 
following in Jesus' steps comes from this verse. What is it we're supposed to do? If you ask the question based on this verse in this context, what would Jesus do? The answer is clearly suffer. (laughs) Really? Yeah, in this context, that is exactly what that means. If you are mistreated by your supervisor, your boss, in whatever position someone has an authority over you, if you're mistreated, endure it with dignity. Act like a Christian even as you suffer. And I say this, I work, I have a position with the Department of Corrections, and I'm a teamster. We're, we're, we have a whole bunch of people that will stand behind us if we're being treated unjustly. But as a Christian... Yes, it's okay to stand up for yourself. It's okay. We live in a country that is designed for us to be able to have representation, and it's designed so that we can have rights and freedoms. But at the same time, as Christians, we have to act as a Christian even as we are being treated unjustly. What would Jesus do? What did he do? He submitted to the authorities, and he suffered. Look at the next chunk of scripture. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And when you see that in Scripture, you need to understand what that is. Luke does it quite a bit. Here we see Peter doing it. He's talking about Jesus dying on a tree, but we all know Jesus died on a cross. Why did he say tree? When you go back into the Old Testament, you'll discover where this comes from. You see, the Romans had mastered torturing people. They had skewered people before they developed the cross. They skewered them, and they would have bodies stacked up. As you walk along a road, you'd see, oh, my goodness, don't upset the Romans. They might do that to you. Don't break their rules. You might end up skewered. But that didn't really torture people as much as they wanted. They wanted people to suffer. So they devised a way that ultimately wound up being the cross, where you beat some some of the people to where they actually die before they make it to the cross. Then you hang them on the cross, and you and, and they learned that people would suffocate because they were stretched out, so they put a little platform for their feet to push up on so they could catch a breath, so they could struggle and take a longer time dying as they suffered. Of course, Jesus, he was nailed. He had his, the Jewish people consider the hand from the elbow to the tip of the fingers, and all of the evidence indicates that the nails were driven in between the bones in the forearm area, and when they nailed him to the cross, and they nailed one nail between his, uh, uh, the, he nailed, they nailed a nail between those bones on each hand uh, at the forearm area, he, they also nailed a nail between both of his feet in the ankle area. That was excruciatingly painful just to be nailed to the cross, of course, but then he could push up, but that would hurt because that's a nail that's in between his ankles. But as they took the cross and they dumped it in the hole, those nails would slide and tear more, more pain. This is torture. Of course, the crown of thorns, you know about that. Jesus was tortured more from all the sins that he had to bear. 
not just the humiliation of the cross and the words that were thrown at him and he was being he was beaten and spat upon that's not the real torture it's the our sins we don't serve him properly we sin he took all that and suffered with all the sin, weight of the sins of the world but he physically suffered as well I mean, it might have looked cool in a movie if the Passion of Christ, if, as he was being beaten, as Jim Convizio took the first whip, if he turned around and grabbed the whip and then whipped all the soldiers, that would have looked cool for some sort of a superhero-type movie, but it would have made Jesus ultimately not the humble servant that he was. And he would have fought to survive instead of surrendering to the authorities so that he could die for us. That's what he did. He suffered. What would Jesus do? Well, what Jesus did do was he suffered for the sake of the glory of God and for us. This idea of how Christians are supposed to behave differently is all throughout Scripture, but I want to give you this. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, Christians, when it comes to everyday life, but what about in the workplace? Do everything without grumbling or arguing. That's the way the NIV says it. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Other translations say do everything without arguing or complaining. Colossians chapter 3 verses 23 to 25 gives us some insight on how we should behave in the workplace environment. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, even though you're working for men, do it as if you're doing it for the Lord. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. What goes around does come around. God will take care of those people who are misbehaving. You still do your best. It doesn't take long to learn if you do your best and you excel. And in the Philippians passage I read out of Philippians chapter 2, later it talks about we're supposed to shine as stars in the universe. And these clear skies we have lately, you can look up at night and you can see the stars and you can marvel at them because in the blackness of the souls of the people that pepper this earth, light really does stand out. And same thing in the darkness of the sky, stars really do stand out. And as Christians, that's what we're supposed to do. It doesn't always work out, though. You could be the one who outperforms everyone, and other people will say, slow down, you're making us all look bad. And people may get upset with you, and people may be harsh with you because you're making them look bad because you're outperforming them, because you are doing your work as if you're doing it for the Lord. But God will take care of you. Your reward is in heaven, and he will take care of those who mistreat you. And sometimes you'll be blessed here on earth. Some of you know what that's like. With people telling you to stop, you're, you're, you're going too fast, you're, we're going to run out of work if you keep doing that. You end up being their boss oftentimes when you keep performing like that. Romans 8.28 was mentioned earlier in the communion meditation. I'm going to read it for you in, in the English Standard Version. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Maybe you'll recall the story of the Campbells. Maybe you don't know, so I'll share it with you. 
In the incipient stages of American history, there was a family that was determined to move here for religious freedom, of course, this great new world. Thomas Campbell came ahead of his family. Thomas Campbell and Alexander Campbell, you might recall in some of your independent Christian church history, and if you don't, you'll learn now. But Thomas Campbell came ahead and became the leader in Washington County, Pennsylvania, for the Presbyterian Church. He came to establish Presbyterian churches, and he was determined to set things up so he could be successful in taking care of his family. He left his family behind in Europe, and his son, Alexander, Alexander was given the task of trying to be responsible for the whole family. He was in college, and as he was in college, he was an outstanding student. Some said he was the best. One day, as Alexander Campbell was standing in line, I don't know if you've seen some of the old-fashioned setups for communion tables in churches, but there'll be a communion table, and there'll usually be a chair on each side of the communion table. Most of us don't know why that's there, but history tells us that the communion table used to be guarded. And it was guarded during Alexander Campbell's day as he was tested, as everyone had to be tested, do you know enough about the Bible to have communion? People developed these tests. Are you worthy of communion? So they had all these Bible questions, and if you could answer, then you were worthy. And they gave you a token, like a little coin, to show them when you get up to the communion table. Alexander Campbell was in the long line of people that had been approved to have communion. It was going long outside the church. And there was a beggar in the street that was begging people, please, let me have communion. But he wasn't educated enough. He didn't know the right answers. He was not allowed to commune with the Lord, not a beggar. No, he wasn't educated. It bothered Alexander Campbell deep in his soul. And by the time he got up to the two guards at the communion table that respected Alexander Campbell, and he respected them, he showed them the coin. He was approved, so it's time for him to partake and have communion with the Lord and with the people there. But Alexander Campbell was so upset, he just looked at the coin and thought how unfair it was and how wrong it was, that they weren't letting just anyone who wanted to be close to the Lord be close to the Lord. And he took that coin and he threw it on the table in disgust and walked out. And as a result, he was kicked out of the school lost his position and his respect. He's going to have to go to the America, take the family there, and explain to his dad, Thomas, how much he had disappointed his father by being kicked out. Meanwhile, at the same time, Thomas Campbell was in the United States of America in this great free country where you can just preach the Bible, he thought. Some in his congregation didn't like it when he preached just the Bible. That's not what the Presbyterian church has ordained you to preach. You need to stick with that. He said, no, we're in a free country. We preach the truth, just the Bible. Well, the Presbyterian church caught wind of it, didn't like it, and removed him as an ordained minister in the Presbyterian church and removed him from his position over the churches in Washington County, Pennsylvania. And he would be left to explain to his family how disappointing he would be to them that he no longer has a job. 
And when the family arrived, Alexander and Thomas both communicated with each other, we need to talk. And they did. And as they stood and talked at night away from everyone else, they came to the conclusion that even though both had been put in a very difficult situation, they both believed that God guided them. They had to go through some suffering, but they stood up with dignity for God, and God took care of them. Romans 8.28, ringing true. And those two are considered some of the founders of the independent Christian churches in the United States. How we came to be as a church here has a lot to do with the history connected to them. The last verse in our text says, in verse 25, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Think about who's telling us these, these things. Peter one who flew off the handle quite a bit in our scriptures, but we can see he's matured quite a bit by the time he's inspired to write this letter to the churches that have been scattered and the Christians who have been oppressed and persecuted. We think we've got it bad. Read their stories. But we are supposed to ask ourselves the question, what would Jesus do? Because we're supposed to follow in his steps and look at what Jesus did do. So what would Jesus do? Three things I think we can learn from today. First of all, suffer. Even when it's unfair, sometimes the right thing to do is to suffer with dignity representing Christ well so that God can be glorified. Second, do all things with excellence, serving our Father. Do your very best when you are doing your work Do it all as if you're doing it for the Lord, because you should be. And third, have confidence that everything will work out if we do our part and set a good example. We're going to pray, and then Bill's going to come up again and and talk. Lord, help us. So many times we are so full of ourselves, and we're so determined to chase after self-gratification and and even worry about our image. Lord, Lord, help us. When we ask the question, what would Jesus do? Remind us what Jesus actually did. Lord, help us, because we do want to follow in his steps. No, it's not appealing to us, Lord. It's not not appealing to rush into suffering. None of us want to rush into that. But Lord, if you call us to represent you, Amidst cruelty, meanness, unkindness, help us to represent you well. And may you be glorified by our behavior. Thank you for allowing us to open up your word together as a church family in this unusual way. Thank you for speaking to us. In Jesus' name, amen.